meant to show that the Bible, that like this is true and like should be taken literally is the stupidest way you can read it. He gave me an A, so. All right, well, that's good. It's the tech, I have to take it from my creative writing major, but it's nudges. It's really weird. Yeah, the idea is that you read Genesis as creative writing. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, it's it gives you it's a background. I mean, you're you're he's from Nedges, but the course is actually um, interdisciplinary. So it's sometimes taught by people in English, sometimes taught by people in Complet, sometimes taught by people in Nedges. Um, I actually haven't taught it for several years, um, for one reason or another. But um, I guess I taught it two years ago, maybe or three years ago. Um, Didn't Professor Campbell teach it at one point? Well, there's an English department version of it as well. Really? Um, which, so, Western yeah, there's, there's Hume 10A and English 10A. And in a lot of ways they overlap, but in some ways they don't. And it depends. It, it's whoever's teaching it has views about what should be happening. And some of us, when we teach it, realize that we're teaching our own syllabi, and other people think there's a standard syllabi, which, syllabus, which there isn't. Um, so, um, but one or the other is um, can count, and in fact used to be required for the English major, but at least can count for the English major. Um, okay, speaking of English, here we are in English 108. Um, so here's uh, what I'm thinking. Um, we'll do this week. We'll do um, Dunn's um, not-yet-holy sonnets. Um, so we'll do more of what we've been um, doing before this week. After break, we'll spend one more week on Dunn. Does that sound um, not too much? Um, and uh, then we will move on, but with a, with a firm grounding in Dunn, I guess, is what we'll say. So, so um, um, and then... Uh, We'll have two papers for the class. I think I mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. And so I propose, if you guys are fine with this, um, that the first one be due like mid-March, um, second week of March. Um, and then the, the second one will be due at the end of the semester. If you're taking this course for graduate credit, uh, you have a choice <coughs> um, of one or two papers, one longer paper, uh, two shorter papers. Um, but if you're taking it for undergraduate credit, um, then two papers, first one due mid-March. Are we going to have the option to substitute one of our papers with memorizing a poem again? Um, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> let me think about it. One of Paradise Lost. <laughs> yeah, you could do that. Hey, I'm down. No, if you want, all right, I'll just say right now, I haven't decided yet, but I will decide that if you do book one of Paradise Lost, <laughs> That's fine. That will be worth so much more than anything else you would ever learn um, in college. Is that available to grad students too? Plus a short paper. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, books one and two instead of a grad. <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, no, no. I think it should be, but I don't think I can. That's harder though to memorize. Yeah. Yeah, but you learn more. You learn more by memorizing. Um, only in the 18th century poetry class, only one person memorized. He did a great job. Yeah, he really did. Um, yeah, he did. 
Okay, so back to a valediction forbidding morning. So, um, just to remind you that there, um, he's essentially um, giving her reasons not to see this farewell as um, that um, dreadful a thing. Um, and a way to put that is to say that he's giving her ways to um, think about it, um, by which being far apart from each other um, can be thought of as still being connected to each other. Um, so uh, just to go back to the whole idea of um, metaphor um, saying something that isn't true, um, therefore, in some sense, um, substituting something counter to the truth for the truth. Um, you could see why a farewell um, would be a particularly um, good place to do such a thing, um, to be reassuring to say that what looks like absence um, is actually can be treated metaphorically as something other than absence. And um, one way that maybe you can feel this, I think this is another possible puzzle of the poem, um, is that the, he, he gives you how many different metaphors for why their parting isn't quite a parting um, that aren't versions of the same metaphor. That is, um, if you think of the flea, I guess it, it would be an interesting question. Let me pose this as a question. In what ways is this poem, um, as in terms of Dunn's way of thinking, way of pursuing a thought, that is not in terms of imagery, you know, it's obviously not the same imagery, or maybe not obviously not the same imagery, but um, the imagery is pretty different, the tone is pretty different, um, the intent is pretty different, the... Per the um, um, desire to persuade or communicate the, the woman that he's talking to um, is a desire to persuade her of something different um, from the flea to communicate something different from what the speaker of the flea wants to communicate. All those things are pretty different. Um, but in what way is it the same um, machine of thinking, um, the, same, um, the same procedure of um, coming up with things to say, um, with imagery to offer. Um, in what ways is this poem similar to the flea? It uses external <clears throat> things to show that they're still connected, even if they may be through a representation of what their relationship is, rather than maybe their stars and planets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, going along with that, I mean, there's a lot of intermingling of them through other mediums, like the blood in the flea and their souls <coughs> in, you know, in essentially the distance between us via various metaphors. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So, um, so the so there, so the blood and the flea. What would that be here? The soul. There are two souls, which are um, so. So the two of them are. Their two bloods are okay. I see. Their two bloods are joined in the flea, and their two souls are joined in what? Their love. In their love, but the flea is something. I mean, that's that's external in the way Nikki is is um, talking compass, about. You think? Well, yeah. So the compass is one is one way that that works. That is, yeah. The the two legs of the compass are joined, um, just as our um, two bloods are joined in in the flea, and indeed in the flea's blood. Um, so the flea is a really um, material object. Um, it's, although it's alive, which matters to what Dunn is doing in that poem, because killing the flea is then event, an event in the poem. Um, still, it's the squishy materiality of the flea that you just can't get out of your mind. That's what makes the poem such a challenge. It's not like the flea becomes transcendent in some way. It's a flea. Um, and I think maybe that's um, what, um, where that circuit outside goes, is through something um, much more material than you would expect for the, <clears throat> let's say, spiritual claims. I don't mean spiritual as in divine, but spiritual as in having to do with the spirit or the mind, um, the spiritual claims that the poem is making. Um, that's another way of describing a metaphysical conceit. Um, that is that you take some brute matter, um, brute because it's just dead, or brute because it's an animal, like a flea, an insect. You take some, some brute, brutal, um, material, inert thing in the world, and um, then you use that as a way not only of describing something spiritual, but of coming up with an even more spiritual description of the spiritual thing. Um, yeah, Hunt. Um, for me, another way to look at it, um, especially in the flea, is Dunn is so good at winning his argument by conceding to his opponent's mm -hmm. argument. Um, so like with the flea, yeah, actually you're right. A flea is nothing and you can just kill it and squash it. So therefore, what's the big deal if we, you know, if we go to bed? And then similarly with, it's more of a stretch with a valediction, but perhaps you can make the argument that, all right, so, you know, if we're not one and we are two, but then we, then, you know, here's the compass and we actually are joined even though there's a separation. So I'll concede that it's a separation, but really we're still joined. So mm -hmm. that kind of... Um, that kind of, you know, rhetorical backdoor move. Yeah, okay, nice. Yeah, good. So there's a concession where the concession itself um, becomes um, fuel for further, for further um, good analogy, helpful analogy, helpful to his claim and his cause. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's related to what you just said, but <coughs> when he uses material things, it's like it makes it... Like, like you said, even though he's making an argument about something spiritual, like it's harder to convince somebody or to make a point about something so abstract. And when he uses something like a flea or like a compass, it's like, I don't know, clay. It's like not more convinced, more convincing or more, it's like stronger, more substantial. Mm -hmm. Like ironically. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's. Um and I guess the feeling is something like um, the spiritual argument is strong enough to make use of anything. Um, that's the easier thing to say. That is, you know, um, 
our love is so great that there's nothing that um, that doesn't um, uh, minister to um, seeing um, that that it's bulletproof in a sense that any um, anything in the world which works um, on its own terms a flea which survives by sucking blood um, a compass which draws circles um, a um, gold mine um, an alchemist, um, you know, these are some of the negative versions, but anything in the world which works on its own terms, um, our love can be thought of as working like that because our love works on all terms. Um, there is no thing in the world that um, makes sense that our love doesn't make sense in the same way also. And so um, what that means therefore is that our love is able to refine everything to show how everything um, is um, to use a word we will use later on a lot and we haven't um, brought up yet um, is a type of our love that is uh, the modern word would be prototype um, something which shows how it works um, a proof of concept is uh, maybe an even more modern um, term for that um, showing that um, anything you want to say about our love or anything you want to say about our love I can show why that thing works anything you want to compare um, to our love or anything you want to say you know why are you so into love I like motorcycles I can then say um, but um, really think what we are like two wheels and the one motorcycle and, um, um, and, and so anything that works um, uh, doesn't show something that our love can't do, it shows something that our love does do. Um, but I think the other and more, more um, visceral or more, more um, uh, um, experiential um, uh, strength in Dunn's poetry is that he's also making their love take on the solidity of the material world. Not saying, oh yes, love is just, but, um, but it's rather, you know, solid objects in the world. Um, our love is solid like that. Um, so there's a kind of exchange of spiritual and and material in Dunn, where the solidity of the world that that he can use as a metaphysical conceit. Also, it's not that he can do it with anything, but wouldn't it be nice if he did it with butterflies? Um, it's that he can do it with anything, and when he does it with compasses rather than butterflies, then you have something really solid. You know, butterflies, they fly away, and they die, and they disappear, and they flutter, but a compass, you know, people use their grandparents' compasses that have lasted for, you know, 100 years. Um, they're made of metal. They're solid. Um, so, so, the, so the material world gives solidity to the spiritual um, um, uh, qualities that he is praising or sometimes dispraising. Um, but there's a kind of exchange of um, the possibilities of refinement on the one side and the um, possibilities of, um, of material heft and solidity on the other side. And I think for Dunn, it goes, it, it's important for him that it can go both ways. And that's, um, um, 
I, th I think that's complementing what you were saying, Han. That is that um, there's uh, um, the concessions are always concessions to something that love can deal with also. And in fact, they're pleasurable concessions because um, love gets that part of the real world as part of its remit as well. Um, so, so I think that's part of the back and forth of Dunn's very strange metaphors. Were you about to say something? I just had a question, and I feel like we've <clears throat> we're far along in the class now that I can, can ask it, but I'm still kind of struggling with reading, and I know he's really popular in, in, in this class, but I'm, to be honest, I'm really struggling with connecting to Dunn, and I don't, I, I don't, um, I don't know. I don't know if I would call him a love poet, and I don't know if when he talk you you talk about him, you know, gesturing toward these spiritual qualities, and I, and for me, that's that works because he talks about the soul and he talks about these qualities, but beyond, you know, the soul being more than kind of this theological construct. Like I don't, you know, I don't feel in his poetry that he's sincerely being moved by these things to the point where he himself can be changed by them because there seems to be like so much control mm -hmm. that he he is so like obsessed with control and when I think about maybe love in the romantic sense it's being open to that self-transformation and like getting on your knees and in the poems that at least I've read I, I never get that sense that done he pays lip service to it but I don't get that sense that he's ever like I'm on my knees and I am being open to the self-transformative yeah. process. Yeah. And so, I don't know. Well, um, I don't know if what I'm missing. <laughs> no. So, so, so I think maybe what we'll look at. There was another poem I wanted to look at today that we're not that instead let's put off. Um, um, but maybe. <coughs> Um, what we should look at are some of the some of the more moving poems, like a nocturnal upon Saint Lucy's Day. Um, that is the one poem that. Okay, there you go. <laughs> or Good Friday, writing westward. Mm -hmm. um, or him to God. I don't. I didn't assign it yet, but him to God, my God, in my sickness. Um, but I think when we get to the the holy sonnets and the, and the uh, other religious devotional poetry, um, you may feel that that's different. I think what you're saying. Well, I don't know. What do people um, do? People want to show Han the error of her ways. Why do you love Dunn? Yeah, those of you who like him. There's a game that we used to play in graduate school. I think some of you know this, um, which was uh, we would see some codger, um, and my friend Jeff would point to that codger and say, "Make me like him." Like just some codger walking down the street, who, the kind of person you just automatically dislike. Um, and then Jeff would say, make me like him. Um, and it was actually a really good spiritual exercise. Um, and, you know, even if they were as cranky as they looked to be, um, you, the, the, the task was still to make Jeff like him. <laughs> Were you allowed to make up things like? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You could okay. make up stories okay. about how it, how it is that he got to be the way he is. Okay. He was um, wounded in a war, and yeah, and, and um, but you saw it to make it, it. You know, it wasn't quite the same thing as well. He has reasons to be bitter, mm. um, because so what? It doesn't mean you have to like someone who's bitter, even if they have 
very good reasons to be bitter, um, but it was somehow that you had to transform that bitterness into coming out of a good part of their soul. Well, I would argue that that perhaps is exactly one of the reasons to like Don. I mean, right. if you go over his... So, yeah, make Han like him. That's <laughs> the point. I mean, and this is, you know, these are all just footnotes on a page, but if you look at his, his life, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of death. He loses half of his 12 children and his brother... Um, at a young age, um, his 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 mother remarries when he's still very young, and I think that you know we think of you know w- witnessing death nowadays and losing you know the loss of a child in modern society is kind of like almost unthinkable. It's really like possibly the most horrible thing that one can imagine. And I think that there's a tendency to be like, oh, well, you know, there's typhoid, everyone, but everyone just sort of... But look at, I mean, look at Shakespeare, first of all, and how it (coughs) profoundly influenced his writing when he lost Hamnet. And I think that in light of of that, of sort of this life shrouded with, you know, death and loss, the ability not to say, oh, love is awesome, but to, to sort of explore the... The contrast of that, especially like, I mean, I really love going Catch a Falling Star. I really think that that, that just the, the contradictions and what, what we brought out in class about the sort of uncertain ending is, is remarkable. Not in Don, I, I don't think I can persuade you that he is a love poet, but I, because I, I don't have any evidence for that, but I think his ability to explore love as a medium for looking at life, is remarkable. So maybe that'll make you like him as a poet, if not a person. <laughs> yeah, a that's a nice way of putting it. Anyone else? Person is witty. He is witty. <laughs> but, that, but for Han, that's a bug, and for you it's a feature. <laughs> right? yeah. Oh, I like wit, <laughs> by all means. I, I like but wit. You don't, but not in love poetry? But I guess I'm hung up on, you know, his... his his understanding or his feeling of love and of the soul, I, I can't, um, yeah, I, it's not, a, it's not sincerity, it's not, um, I don't know, it's, I, I think, again, it's just this, this being open to that self-transformation, for me, either love's devastation or, you know, um, being totally consumed by it or all those kind of renaissance you why know, tropes, like... He is consumed by it. I think it's refreshing. He's obsessed with it. Yeah, he's obsessed with sex, I would, but I don't but I, feel like he's obsessed love. with the feeling he's obsessed with of love. I would ask, why does having to be overwhelmed with love a necessary feature of, of a poet, of a love poet? I think it speaks to humility. I think it speaks to something beyond oneself. That selflessness yeah. is... Is but that think, not at the heart of I think of it's love? refreshing because in some cases, like, I'm, I'm not saying in all cases, in some cases, when poets are overwhelmed with love and write love poems, what they're really doing, they, they might, they're convincing the person they're writing the love poem to have sex. Oh, for sure, for sure, for and sure. Like, I'm not saying Petrarch was, you Because know. he's trying <clears throat> to understand, I mean, like, of course he's offensive at times, but, <laughs> no, like, I, I can't say I like him as a person, but he's trying to understand the relationship between love and sex in different from different yeah. perspectives. I think what Han is saying though is that like he doesn't have humility and that that renaissance yeah. notion of almost being an acolyte to the god love is is what you find. But like, not not so much light. that too. I mean, 
you know, I, I'm not um, a thoroughgoing romantic hair. <laughs> I'm not saying, you know, please put a woman on a pedestal. But it's just that, you know, I, I like him more if I think of him just in terms of the wit or, the, you know, the, the, the wordplay, the sexiness, that's fine. But to accept him as a love poet, I just can't. I think I, I would almost qualify him more as a love poet in the modern sense because the way that he talks about what like an image of her who I love more than she is yeah that's a great idea but the way that we think about love poetry now is about relationships and is about love as it relates to everything sex and life and death and I I I don't know your your focus of study but I know that a lot of renaissance poetry and classic poetry does have that kind of humility to it and does have a kind of more tight focus on on what you were saying of sort of let me surrender to love and I think you're right I don't think Don fits in with that but I think that's part of what makes it extraordinary because it's like that's why it's so like I'm getting a lot out of reading this now today like applying it to things I understand about modern life and yeah I think you're totally right I don't think it fits in with a lot of renaissance classical uh, he seems a little less naive than someone. Yeah, no, Oh, I'm all for be not being naive yeah. about love. Absolutely. I don't know if I'd want to be married maybe, to him. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I like it because I, I find traditional love poetry mm-hmm. a little too naive and floppy. And I no, like this uh, a lot. No, I, There's a lot to be said I agree with you that. Yeah. <clears throat> you jump in and us, Professor Black. <laughs> 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 <That's laughs> <great>. you, <laughs> you didn't feel like his path, his devotion to love was intense enough or something? What was the... <laughs> I noticed there's all three men on this side. I was what do women want? <laughs> no, 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 but, yeah, but I was confused. But, but, but Nikki and, and Abby are defending Dunn too, right? And what a, I mean, I, you're not actively defending Dunn. You would defend Dunn. Um, you like him because he's witty. Um, do you like... Abby, do you like him as a love poet or just as... I also think, like, what we were talking about last class about whether, like the Don who wrote the um, ecstasy or the Don who wrote the alchemist, like, which had more perspective. And I like him because I don't, I don't know if he knows mm-hmm. that. Nice. And, yeah, that's helpful. And I, I, I like, I like that about him. And because, I don't know, I think it's, it's more relatable than, um, because, and it also reminds me of, like, whichever one we read in, like, the very first day of class, and how he said, with the moments when he's, like, fearing that he doesn't believe yeah, yeah, that yeah. Those, of X and, and that's about movement. religion but yeah. I, think, I think that can also like that I, that sort of idea can be brought into like the love poems where like those times when he's not sure that's, that's mm. when he knows yeah, uh, he he is keenly self-aware without managing to be very humble at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, he may manage to be humble in in, in the religious poems. That's something to consider. Um, what if we what if we try to? I mean, I think that if if we make this descriptive, um, because it's a bug feature thing. So so let's describe this thing, which is either a bug or a feature or as a bug for some and a feature for others. Um, the, everyone knows that? It's a really... <laughs> okay, so um, whenever... This, this, is, uh, this is actually really old in geeky computer science um, <laughs> circles, but it became really famous with Microsoft, um, which is um, 
the if you if you look up the sort of funny dictionary, and there are various versions of this, but the funny dictionary of, of um, computer terms, um, if you look up the word bug, you know what a bug is, right? It's when a program doesn't work right and crashes. Um, the definition of bug is undocumented feature. Mm -hmm. um, and um, what that means is, no, it's doing what it was supposed to do, but we forgot to tell you that if you did this, um, here is the good thing it would do for you, assuming you wanted that, which is like to give you the endlessly circling ball, because you might want that for some um, or the blue screen of death, because who wouldn't occasionally want the blue screen of death? Um, so, the, so the joke, the cynical definition of, of bug is undocumented feature. Um, but the basic idea is, when, is that uh, when people would complain to Microsoft, which is um, all bells and whistles, as you know, um, if you use Word, um, uh, whenever anyone said, you know, why does it do this? That's a bug. Um, their answer would always be, no, that's not a bug. It's a feature. Um, it's a good thing, not a bad thing. It enables you to do even more ridiculous things that you would never want to do. I mean, don't you love it when it starts numbering your paragraphs um, and there's nothing you can do about it, about the fact that it's numbering your para paragraphs and all the backspacing you do and all the reformatting you do? It says, we another number. Um, see, that's a feature. We do that for you. Um, so, but there are people who do love it. Um, and so... Um, it's not a bug, it's a feature, is a way of um, praising something that, that other people are blaming. Um, but it's also implicitly saying that lots of things that claim to be future, features are actually bugs. And if you think about it, it's really what English teachers tend to do a lot, especially early in your career as English majors, which is you notice that, like, um, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? And you say... <laughs> in your naive, charmingly naive, untutored and unlearned ways. Why does Blake get to rhyme I and symmetry? <laughs> um, that seems like a bug. And um, then your English teacher will explain to you in very sophisticated ways, no, just how utterly brilliant it is that Blake <laughs> did that. Um, because look, it's, first of all, it's an asymmetrical rhyme, I'm just making this up, but look, <laughs> it claims to be about symmetry, and yet what you have is a one-syllable word, I, which doesn't actually rhyme with this polysyllabic word, symmetry, but your I notices that there is a Y oh in the middle of the word E-Y-E, itself a symmetrical word, and then the word symmetry is underlining that precisely through the fact that it doesn't go for the cheap symmetry of an easy rhyme. Okay, so it's not a bug, it's a feature. Blake did something utterly brilliant by rhyming I with symmetry rather than not coming up with a better rhyme. So if you've had that experience of English teachers kind of coming up with... No. <laughs> you totally gave that same explanation. Or no, I didn't. No, you made up a different one. It's true. Yeah, I made up a different one. <laughs> um, no, I definitely just made this one up now. I'm actually kind of proud of it. Um, but um, <coughs> if you've had, I think everyone, every English major has had that um, experience, which is, um, you know, the teacher is finding stuff that isn't there in order to, um, everyone knows that it's hard to rhyme. Um, and, you know, it's the dirty secret of languages that poets sometimes say what they want to say 
in order to get a rhyme, not because it's the best possible thing they could say at this moment. Um, and it wasn't actually a secret in the 17th century. Um, people like um, people who were writing about rhyme and meter at the time um, were saying, you know, rhymes. Well, Milton himself said that rhymes make um, poets say things otherwise and often worse than they otherwise would have said them. Um, he says this in the note on the verse to Paradise Lost, explaining why it doesn't rhyme. Um, because he said rhyme actually leads you astray. Trying to rhyme makes you say stuff that you didn't intend to say. Um, and, sorry? What you just said rhymed. Astray. 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 Uh, see, there you go. Some, <laughs> sometimes it just falls into place. Um, and then you find you're winning the race. But, um, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I would say it's excellent. No, that, that doesn't work. Um, all right. So um, the basic, and I think bugs and features, um, including fleas, um, as bugs that turn into features, um, are helpful for understanding how metaphysical conceits work, which is, um, again, you could say something like <laughs> the, the woman says, look, it's a bug, I'll kill it. And he says, that's not a bug, it's a feature. It shows why we love each other, you know, why we should be having sex. Um, that is, it's it, the cleverness of a poet um, on all levels is to take something that is um, random and unexpected and not um, particular, not meaningful. We talked about this before with respect to rhyme, that it's that the connection between the two words that rhyme is not a meaningful connection. Um, and they turn it into something meaningful. Um, and Dunn does that with objects in the world. Um, Here's a flea, stands for our love. Um, there's a novelty song about 15 or 20 years ago when I was um, four, and uh, called Everything Reminds Me of My Dog. Um, anyone ever hear that? Look it up on YouTube, but not now. <laughs> but everything reminds me of my dog. It's great. It's a catalog song um, because uh, at the end of the song, there's, she just lists all the things in the world that remind her of her dog. <laughs> um, the price of food reminds me of my dog. And um, so, so um, uh, for Don, it's everything reminds me of our love, you could almost say. And if you challenge him, you know, but how does that chair remind you of, of your love? He'll tell you. Um, he'll make it. Um, remind him of his love. That flea reminds me of my love. But the reason I brought up the bug, fe bug feature question here is um, simply to say let's, we can maybe stipulate the following description about what reading poetry is like and what we want from reading poetry. And it seems that one thing we want um, and is um, to put it um, really, really lapidarily, that is... Um, we would now say Twitterly. Do people know what lapidary writing is? So if you praise writing as lapidary, or if you blame it as lapidary, it's another bug feature thing. Um, what lapidary means is that it's very concise and very pithy. Um, and so people will talk about a lapidary style. And a lapidary style, um, you could say Hemingway has a lapidary style, for example, unlike Dickens, um, who whatever he has, it's not a lapidary style. Um, <laughs> Um, it's a really good word, lapidary, and it doesn't have letter E in it, which makes it even better. Um, and, um, but the thing about a lapidary style is that originally it means the kind of style 
um, that was um, useful if you were if what was being said was being carved on stone. So lapis means stone. And the idea is a lapidary style is not a wasted word, ideally not a wasted letter, because carving in stone is hard. Um, and so a lapidary style is you just really want to say it um, in as brief and efficient um, and clear a way as possible so that you don't have to do a ton of stone carving. Um, so you can imagine that if your experience of purgatory were, if everyone's experience of purgatory were carving things into stone before they get to go to heaven, you would prefer to be given a Hemingway story than a Dickens novel um, before you got to heaven. Um, so to put this, so now you know what lapidary means, um, to put this in a lapidary way, um, what we could say about poetry is that they're good to quote with. That is to say that one thing that poetic um, response is, one thing that um, poetic experience is, is um, that you um, think, yes, I would want to say this in certain situations. Um, th yes, uh, you know, this love poem, let's say, um, that's what I would like to say to that person. Um, or that's what I think to myself um, when I think of that person, um, or have some kind of unreal fantasy about uttering those ideas, those sentiments, those feelings to that person. So it's not only, you know, the, the standard thing is people say, well, you identify with that. Um, I don't think that's true. I don't know what identification actually means, um, and I think it's an empty word. Um, but um, your word, Abby, relatable, um, is even though it's a word I hate, um, um, no, it's a, it's a it's a recent word like reference um, as a verb, like well he was referencing the you know you're not supposed to say that you probably don't you shouldn't, reference is not a verb, um, relatable is not really an adjective, um, it's not an adjective ex except to the extent that it relates to different things like this is relatable to the question of um, Nicholas of Cusa's early um, um, work. Um, but what, what you're meaning by the word is, yeah, you could imagine saying this. Um, you could feel thrilled by the idea that you might be the person um, who said this, who came up with this. Um, it's, you could call it the air guitar theory of poetry, um, which is you know just that lick is so great that when it's played, you just go, <laughs> and your face looks like that, and you're just totally <laughs> transported by what you're actually not doing, but what you're hearing so intensely that it's as though you're doing it. So does that make sense to people as, as an experience of reading poetry, mm -hmm. and the poetry you love most is, the, is that air guitar kind of poetry? Um, Longinus, the great theorist of the sublime, defined the experience of the sublime as the soul takes a proud flight as though she herself, there's that feminine soul, as though she herself had written what she has only heard or read. Um, so that experience almost of pride in what you're reading. Um, and, and that's a neat thing, that you would experience pride in what you're reading. Um, because, because, yes, um, and um, 
so if we say then that for some people Dunn is someone that you would want to quote in that way, but for others he isn't, um, does that seem a fair <coughs> way of um, distinguishing between Han, let's say, on the one hand, which is that you don't really feel like you want to say, oh, that is just so great. Some that have deeper dug loves Han. <laughs> um, um, so that you just rarely find yourself wanting to, to even imagine saying what Dunn says. I mean, saying it in those words. Um, whereas um, the people who like him, um, for whatever reason, you might want to quote him. You know, you might want to say, God, look at this just outrageous poem of Dunn's. It's hilarious. Um, you know, let's, let's, um, let me quote it for you. Um, <laughs> did you guys, by the way, <laughs> look at The Imperfect Enjoyment, anyone? Um, you, are, you are doing yourself a disservice by not looking <laughs> at it. Um, it will, um, I, I think it's definitely quotable. <laughs> um, so, yeah, The Imperfect Enjoyment. Um, so if, if we say that, you know, then I think that's a way of, um, that's a touchstone for what it means um, to like or to find something a bug or a feature. Um, features you embrace, um, bugs you say you. Um, and, um, and you can still be descriptive um, and then evaluative after that. Um, but let's, I guess one thing to say about what Dunn is doing is that um, he's also, <coughs> given that kind of interchange, let's say, between tenor and vehicle, where the vehicle is surprisingly brute material um, and, um, and inert, um, part of the brute material inert world, um, surprisingly that given that the um, tenor is something which is supposed to be so spiritual. That's the surprise in Dunn. Um, the fact that, um, again, that he's not picking um, the things in the material world that are closest to the spiritual world. Um, we're not going to do this part in Milton, but there's a famous exposition in Milton of the great chain of being um, where Raphael, the archangel, um, Adam is saying, how can, how can you angels, Raphael says, Raphael comes to dinner basically, um, and Adam is surprised that he can eat earthly food. And Raphael says, well, there's actually a continuity from um, the, the um, origin of all matter up through the angels. Um, and it's a, and um, it's a simple chain of being, um, and each step on it becomes purer than the step before, and eventually you get to a place where it becomes pure enough that it comes alive, and um, even as it becomes alive, you get higher levels of life, and eventually you get pure spirit. But you you start out um, on the, on a spectrum of pure matter, and then the matter becomes more and more spiritous, is Raphael's word until finally becomes pure spirit, and um, things can move up the great chain of being, um, as we know by looking at how food gets digested. That is that people eat matter, um, pizza, although they, alas, didn't have pizza in the Garden of Eden. Um, people eat material um, substance 
and that material substance gives rise to thought and to, um, to, to the mind. Um, so the purification of matter into mind. Um, you know, that's something people are thinking about. That's what alchemists are thinking about. Um, so, but generally, it, for most poets, what they will do is they'll take something that's already pretty high on that chain um, for the vehicles of their spiritual metaphors. Um, so that's why you say my love is like a red, red rose, or um, um, my love is, you know, or, or our love is, is like um, uh, the singing of birds to each other or something like that. Objects from the natural world, but it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to spiritualize them. Whereas Dunn, and the metaphysicals in general, um, but Dunn most of all, is taking the most material things he can come up with um, in order to talk about spiritual um, matters. Well, matters is the wrong word. Um, spiritual essences um, via these material things. Um, the res one result then being, as I say, this interchange of matter and spirit is much more prominent in Dunn than it is in, um, you know, I mean, I, I showed you that Herrick poem, When As in Silk, My Julia Goes, Then, Then, Methinks, um, she chiefly shows the liquefaction of her clothes. So, um, yeah, Julia goes in silks, and that causes the liquefaction of her clothes because Julia is walking in them. But imagine if it were, you know, when as in burlap, Julia <laughs> goes. And that would be much more done-like. Um, that is, silk is already, you know, it's silky. It's, it's, it's light. It's floating up into the spiritual realm. Burlap, not so much. Um, and um, I guess that's the paper bag princess, right? Um, but, that's, um, but that's what Dunn is always doing, is he's going as far as he can to spiritualize, um, but you could also say he's therefore, in his bitter poems, going as far as he can to materialize. Some that have deeper dug loves mine. Dug loves mine. Um, what does that do to love? It completely pulls it down. You know, not some that have thought harder about love or have explored love's um, caverns or love's um, forests or whatever. Um, the Petrarch Wyatt idea of the heart's forest. Um, no, that's not done. It's some that have deeper dug love's mine. Um, and um, so it can, as you see, it can have the exact opposite effect as well um, if he's bitter. Um, which is to materialize things that kind of come with confirmation bias and, and with um, a sense of an aura of spirituality around them. Um, you know, if you've seen This is Spinal Tap, um, the most famous scene in This is Spinal Tap, you know, I don't think that's a key sadder than E minor, right? Everyone remembers that scene? Yeah. Um, so that's a Dunn-like moment. Um, the... This, this sad, melancholy key for the new song that they're writing. Um, and then you find out the title of the song, and um, <laughs> it completely um, uh, pulls down. I just remembered the title. You just remembered it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so nothing, it's not a patch on Rochester, but, you know, it <laughs> does the trick. Um, so, um, but again, one 
place, depend, um, either, either direction you're going, um, probably the really crucial foci in the highly elliptical orbit that Dunn is tracing, you should actually admire that, um, <laughs> are um, sex and love. And the idea is that love makes sex spiritual. So sex really is material. Um, it's as material as things get. Um, and um, as Yeats put it, um, love, has pitched, love has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement. Um, and for Yeats, that was shocking. Um, but it's as material as, as you get. Um, and yet it can be spiritualized, and that's what Dunn will do in poems like To His Mistress, Going to Bed, maybe, um, in poems um, like The Ecstasy. That is, he'll really push the spiritual aspect of things and then um, say, so therefore sex is spiritual also. It can be a really good vehicle for a spiritual tenor which is our getting together, our going into our bodies and uniting in our bodies. Or it could be, you know, love is bullshit. Um, and what it really is is sex um, pretending that there's this, um, that there's this other um, domain, um, but the real meaning of sex is sex. And if the tenor is, um, I mean, if the vehicle is that, you know, we're like um, two, two beings inter-assured of mind or whatever, um, that's a vehicle but whose tenor is actually something material. Um, and you see that again in the, in the two possible uh, meanings of the last line of uh, to his mistress on going to bed, which is, you know, what other covering needs you than a man? What more covering needs you than a man? Um, where um, one is we are mutually naked um, and open to each other and um, so part of what sexuality means here is equality between us you know you, you shouldn't fear that equality between us it is in sex that that uh, man and woman um, achieve in achieving their own fullness as lovers also achieve the fullness of their potential equality. And the other is, you know, missionary position, um, all you need is me on top of you, girl. Um, and you can see that it can go both ways. Um, and so again, I think that's kind of emblematic of the, what you could call this, dial, what you could call a dialectical back and forth between these two different levels. Um, where it's never clear which the, as you as one might put it, which foot of the compass is going around which foot of the compass, um, and sometimes it's clear, you know, that this really is a love poem. I think, um, and sometimes it's clear that this really, whatever it is, it isn't a love poem, like Love's Alchemy, um, and sometimes it's not clear, and when it's not clear. Um, things get kind of interesting. Um, and I think that's also why there's, as I say, why there's always that hint of a third person um, who might witness them or might judge them or might get wrong what's going on or might have the wrong idea or might see um, what she doesn't see. 
Um, that is that there is interpretation of what's going on there as well, which means that there's possibility of more than one interpretation. Um, but I guess what I, what I was trying to get at, and, and this is another way of, of saying what Han was saying too, I think, um, about what's um, typical, typically the same in the flea and in a valediction forbidding morning, is that um, it's the rapidity with which Dunn will jump from one possible image to another. Um, so in the flea, it's, you know, the flea is our marriage bed, the flea is Jesus Christ, the flea is um, a, a temple um, in which we are, um, the flea is a sexual being that sucks us both, um, the flea is um, nothing because what counts is, are the two of us and not the flea, and um, uh, our getting together is no more significant than this flea, which I've made so significant, actually is, but um, he's willing to, you know, give um, several different um, versions of the flea, um, and they're not consistent with each other. Um, it's, he says, you know, here's a flea, here's what it means, and uh, she says, actually, it doesn't mean that, and he says, okay, well, then here's what it means, and she says, you think so, and then he says, okay, so that means this is what it means. Um, and um, it's not that the flea means all those things. It's that he's really resourceful <laughs> in coming up with a new story for what the flea means each time. Um, and the only thing that's really consistent among all of them is that this was a flea bloated with their blood. Um, so you may feel the same thing in A Valediction Forbidding Morning, um, which is, um, I've lost it. Um, what is it, page 112? 120. Um, which is that first there is um, uh, someone dying, um, and then um, the question is, I mean, just now we're recapping, and finally we get to start the class. Um, so virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, um, while some of their sad friends do say the breath goes now and some say no. Um, now, it, since this is a valediction and since he's going, what the best way, I think, to make sense of this is to say that um, mainly what this means is she's whispering to him to go. Um, that is, it's really sad. Um, but as a man whispers to his soul to go um, and doesn't um, make a big deal out of it because mildness is um, part of virtue and also part of, um, part of virtue because it's not um, a protest making everyone feel bad, making third parties watching this feel bad. Um, so the first image is one of... Um, we have to separate from each other, which is like a man separating from his soul. Um, but that also means that because the person is their soul, um, it's not a real separation, so that there's a foot in the door of um, staying together, even in the case of our separation. And then we have, so let us melt and make no noise. So here again, you have a simile where both um, a simile with a metaphor combined. 
that is um, not so let us part, in which case you would have the simile, let us part the way virtuous men part from their souls. The simile is there is a way that virtuous men part from their souls. Let's, um, that should be the analogy for, or the simile for how we should part from each other. But suddenly you have a metaphor, so let us melt. Melt like what? Um, what's similar about the simile and the metaphor, um, the metaphor and the thing that um, is given as a simile for the metaphor, um, is the idea of things happening gradually and um, um, undramatically. So melting is like that, and um, virtuous men dying is like that. The breath um, coming very, very slow, but you're still not sure if it's a last breath or not. Um, but melting is a different um, set of imagery. Um, so let us melt. So now we have a second image. And make no noise. So let's melt like what? Um, ice? Snow? Um, other options? Sexual aspects of oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. We will get there in this poem. Yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, okay. Possibly in the sense of um, let we should embrace as people who love each other do, but without noise, that is, so it's not going to be, you know, wild farewell sex, but um, um, it, pr it actually means weep. Um, I mean, that would be the strongest sense that people would get from this at the time. Um, and um, hence the, the idea of tear floods. So, so let us melt, um, let's weep, but quietly, um, just a tear or two, and make no noise. Um, the transition, Dunn is a really bad model for writing English papers, I should tell you. <laughs> um, but the transition here is the idea that when virtuous men die and their, their friends are sad, um, but they're not weeping um, torrents yet because they're not sure that they're dead. And um, the mildness of the virtuous men's deaths also makes it easier on their friends. So now it's so let us melt. And in a sense, we're finding out after the fact that the so refers to their sad friends. Let us be like the sad friends of virtuous men um, who are passing mildly away and whispering to their souls to go. So now the image is not, we're like the virtuous men passing away and whispering to their souls to go. Rather, we're like the sad friends who are weeping for them, or maybe we're like both, because the we're like both part of this poem is the most important part. Whenever we, you get to a we're like both moment, you're getting to an important moment. So let us melt and make no noise, partly because when you're sitting around uh, keeping watch over someone dying um, peacefully, you want that peace to continue. Um, so that again makes them like the sad friends. So let us melt and make no noise. No tear floods, nor sigh tempests move. That is not, oh my god, it's so awful. Um, exposing them to comment upon the platform, to quote Oscar Wilde. Um, no tear floods nor sigh tempests move. Um, Twere profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. 
Um, so now it feels like they're not the bystanders anymore. Um, they're rather those who are parting from each other, but not um, making that parting dramatic for anyone else. So there keeps being this kind of morphing of um, the imagery. And it tends to go by way of Dunn's um, interesting and characteristic way of combining a simile with a metaphor. That is, that you have a simile, and then the thing compared to that simile is a metaphor. So there isn't um, simply the literal meaning. There's, um, we, and so every time you combine a simile with a metaphor, you open up the possibility of using the new metaphor as the term of another simile. Um, and he just keeps doing that. Um, and he does it partly because that's the point, that we can melt from simile to metaphor to simile to metaphor um, because we morph together, you could almost say. Um, so all these storms that we're not going to have, <coughs> North Side Tempest, <coughs> all this profanation of our joys, if we tell the laity our love, um, well, that then makes him think of violence, um, violent natural circumstances, like earthquakes. So, um, you know, the, um, we don't want storms. Um, think of earthquakes. They bring harms and fears. So, you know, think of the wind. I think the theory of earthquakes at the time, although I'm not sure about this, was that they were actually caused by horrendous weather. That is, that if you had just a whirlwind, if you had just some horrible meteorological occurrence, um, could be so horrible as to make um, the earth shake. And um, um, so that would then be a natural transition from um, tear floods and side tempests to um, moving of the earth, which brings harms and fears. Men reckon what it did and meant. But trepidation of the spheres, the greater far is innocent. So now suddenly we have another um, image which is we've gone from um, people dying to um, their, to their uh, mourners um, uh, melting into tears um, to how this is really not like a psi tempest or an earthquake because it's really like the uh, motion of the spheres in heaven um, because we're not dull sublunary lovers, um, but we are refined that... Um, so much that our two souls, therefore, which are one, um, though I must go and do not yet a breach, but an expansion. So we're not um, splitting from each other, but there's an expansion um, between us, like gold to airy thinness beat. And I wanted to read you um, just um, as a neat ans ancilla to this. Um, if you have the Oxford, this is page 329. Um, and Dunn's, Dunn's sermons are um, pretty amazing. Um, he talks about poetic endings in this sermon preached in 1623, um, talking about the Psalms. Um, 
it is easy for a lot of the poets we're reading model themselves or model themselves is way too strong love the Psalms and love the idea of um, a book of the Bible being made up of poems and in particular I guess I should just tell you this because it will because A you should know it and B it'll be important a little bit later um, there are a set of Psalms in the Bible that were identified um, as what are called the penitential Psalms and the story is it's not true whatever true means about the Bible um, but the um, belief was, the idea was, that David um, and Bathsheba, what David um, did to Uriah the Hittite in order to um, marry Bathsheba, um, was the worst thing David ever did. So do people know about David and Bathsheba? Does this ring a bell at all? All right, there's a war going on. David is in, King David is in his palace. Um, he happens to look out his window, and this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, is, is um, bathing on her roof, and he falls in love with her and has sex with her, um, and um, then realizes that her husband is coming home, and this is not a good thing, um, I believe also because she's pregnant. Um, so he arranges with his chief general, um, yeah, this actually comes up, you guys, in Absalom, and a kid of hell. Um, he arranges with his chief general um, to send Uriah to on a suicide mission, on a mission that a forlorn hope, where he's killed, and that's you know David has essentially committed murder, um, or the moral equivalent of murder, and this is a terrible thing. He gets rebuked, um, and. Um, then there are a set of psalms in which the singer of the psalms, who is most of them are traditionally ascribed to David. Um, actually, someone asked Kimmelman where the, penitent, where the idea of pen, penitential psalms comes from. Um, that would be a good thing to ask him. We can, we can have this mediated conversation. Um, but a set of psalms that are traditionally, um, most of the psalms, not all, but most of the psalms are ascribed to David. If you look at the psalms, it'll say, you know, Psalm 23, a psalm of David's to the chief musician, and David was the sweet singer of Israel, and um, soothed Saul and his madness, and so on. So the penitential psalms um, are um, the psalms that are traditionally read as David repenting for what he did. And um, the penitential psalms were then become a really fascinating for 16th and 17th century poets. They become a kind of fascinating anthology of sad, melancholy poems that um, many poets translated um, into their own versions. Milton did a couple of the penitential psalms. Um, Thomas Wyatt, who I quoted before, The Heart's Forest, um, did an amazing um, selection of the, I mean, an amazing translation with, with narrative material um, interspersed of the penitential psalms. Um, so the poet, let's put it this way, the poets of the, 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 the religiously oriented poets of the 16th and 17th century, um, it's not so much as that they modeled themselves on the psalms as that they um, knew what poetry was and read the psalms as poetry and imputed to the psalms and understood in the psalms and got from the psalms 
as much as they could possibly get by way of poetic um, affect. And these are people who really knew poetic affect um, because they were great poets themselves. Um, so Dunn talking about um, the Psalms has this um, great little paragraph. It is easy to observe, he says, that in all metrical compositions of which kind the book of Psalms is, that is, it's a metrical composition, the force of the whole piece is for the most part left to the shutting up, that is, to the ending of the, um, of the work. The whole frame of the poem is a beating out of a piece of gold, but the last clause is as the impression of the stamp, and that is it that makes it current. So what a poem does is it's like beating out, and here you also have a sense of the meter. It's beating out a piece of gold, not necessarily to airy thinness. Here, here his metaphor is drawn from coins. Um, but you beat out a piece of gold, and finally when you get to the very end, that last phrase is like um, stamping the value and the face of the king or whatever um, that, you know, that says one pence or one shilling on it um, and gives it its meaning and gives it its value. So now you have a piece of gold that's been beaten out, so now it's a sovereign. Now it's, now it's um, got the face of the king on it um, and, is, and is a pound. Um, and that, for Dunn, is a metaphor for what poetry is. So the fact that he's beating, beating all these different metaphors, you could say, into shape, also means that, um, first of all, this metaphor of gold to airy thinness beat is a kind of metaphor, if he's thinking the same way, of writing the poem, not only of our departure from each other, but I'm coming up with all these different images and metaphors because that itself is like beating out the gold, of which the metaphor of beating out the gold is one metaphor. Um, and then the metaphor of the compass, making it circular, making a circle is another metaphor. So then let's go on from there. Um, so our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go endure not yet a breach, but an expansion, like gold... <coughs> Terry thinness beat. If they be two, because they're both two and one, they are two so as stiff twin compasses are two. So a twin compass just means a compass with two legs. Um, thy soul, the fixed foot makes no show to move, but doth if the other do. So how does that work? When he moves, she, or when he does something, she does. But otherwise, she, she's does that mean she's constant, though? She's, like, faithful? Yeah, she's, well, she's constant as in constantly loving him. I don't think the question of whether she's going to cheat on him comes up. The question of um, whether his absence is going to somehow erode their love, he's saying no way. Um, but just what describe what's happening with the compasses. Well, I mean, with a compass, where one leg is influences the position of another leg, and in a way they're always... You know, no matter how far around a circle it moves, they're equidistant. Uh huh. As long as you don't move the top part. Right. <laughs> yeah, there is that. And they're useless apart from. And yeah. I guess I'm asking a, a, a much more literal-minded question, which is, um, <coughs> how does the fixed foot move if the other foot moves? Well, 
in a real compass. Just think of drawing circles in ninth grade geometry. It rotates. It rotates, yeah. So it looks like it's not moving, um, but if you were to look really carefully, you would see that it was rotating. In other words, of course it's rotating. You can see that if you're looking at the whole compass, but if you're just focused on the fixed foot, um, you might not notice that it was rotating if that's all you were looking at um, because it doesn't look like it's moving. It's staying at one point. But at that point, it's rotating following, um, in connected with and following the other foot um, whose rotation is much more obvious because it's, it's going around the whole circle, right? Um, so that's a nice image. Um, thy soul, the fixed foot, and that's also a, a really nice compliment to her. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth if the other do. Um, <coughs> it also means that you're willing to stay here and not to say, oh, I have to come with you, I can't stand it. Um, you're not, this is again not making a show for the laity, um, moving side tempests and so on. You should probably notice that the word move is um, repeated there. Also that the idea of the compass in some sense has to be coming out of the idea of the spheres. That is the, the huge um, circular um, motions of the planets. Um, and though it in the center sit, yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it. So the farther away I go, then what happens? So he's describing two, way, two kinds of motion that you can make a compass undergo after you've planted the fixed foot. Okay, so imagine this is a compass. One motion is here's, <laughs> I don't know, here's the fixed foot. No, here's the fixed foot. I think that'll be easier. And it, if the other foot moves, the fixed foot rotates, right? What's the other kind of motion once you plant this foot that you can do? The distance. The distance, yeah. So, um, and though it in the center sit, yet when the other far doth roam, it leans. How does that happen then? The angle increases. Right, the angle increases. It leans forward as the other foot goes farther away. It leans and hearkens after it and grows erect as that comes home. So yes, <laughs> yeah. So here's where the sex comes in, um, for sure. Except it's interesting and, and um, worth noticing that she's the one who grows erect as the other foot comes home. Um, but remember, they're one soul. Well, I mean, also it could mean literally her standing straight, like on the dock, like watching. Oh, it does mean that. Oh. Um, but he wants the sexual. I mean, look, you can say um, that maybe that's a bug. That is, he really didn't want you to think, oh, erect. Uh huh. I'm Beavis and Butthead. Um, but. Um, he decided most people wouldn't notice this, and maybe he didn't notice it, and fine, whatever. It really wasn't there. You think there's double entendre there, you have a dirty mind. Um, <laughs> but it goes on. Um, and the strange thing, however, is that if you, let's stipulate that it's sexual, um, that it really is sexual, which I think we're going to see in a minute, it has to be. Um, then the interesting thing is that there is an inter um, um, whatever of sexual features. That is, she's the one growing erect as he comes home. Um, Such wilt thou be to me who must, like the other foot, obliquely run, 
So I have to go away obliquely, which means not in a perfect circle, but I go farther away and probably describe a spiral. Thy firmness makes my circle just and makes me end where I begun. That is, I both draw a perfect circle, which is one image of returning to where I started, but the other image of returning to where I started is coming back, not going around in a circle with you in the middle, but coming back from out here with you in the middle. Those are two different motions, but he wants those two motions to be the same, to be metaphors of each other. In both cases, I end where I begun, whether around the center of the circle or from the um, perimeter of the figure to its center. Um, but thy firmness makes my circle just sexually means I mean it could mean the fact that only I turn you on it makes my No, no, it's much more literal. It's no. just much more literal. Sperm, penis, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Your nice cylindrical oh, penis makes my, circle, makes my circle vagina. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um so, and, you know, there, once you see it, you can't not see it, I'm afraid. Um, and so the question is, why? Um, and I think the answer is because that's another one of those dialectical interchanges where he takes on, he describes himself as female um, and, and describes her as male because we two are one. Um, and um, we join as one in that way. Um, so is that good or bad, huh? Bugger feature. <laughs> to reflect on it. Okay. <laughs> nice. All right. See you Friday.